Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of Captain Hunter's Podcast, the podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you so much for tuning in for another episode. Got a great one for you today. We have a U.S. Congresswoman, Representative Johanna Hayes from the Connecticut 5th District, my district here in the state of Connecticut. Stay tuned for that, and we'll get into it in just a little bit course as we do it just a little bit of housekeeping just want to make sure that you guys are liking subscribing and sharing these episodes please rate the episodes high uh, that way the algorithms can uh, help me to be found a lot sooner and a lot faster share the episodes with your friends your co-workers your family even people you don't like and subscribe to the episodes itunes google play spotify iHeartRadio, whatever platform that you're listening to these episodes on please make sure that you are hitting that subscribe button that way you can be notified when i have a new episode out also remember to head on over to lmh police training and consulting that's hunterpolicetraining.com head over to there make sure that you're checking out the blog we'll make sure that you are subscribing to the blogs head over to the facebook page captain hunters podcast uh we're looking to be engaging over there follow me on instagram cptl hunter twitter cptl hunter youtube captain hunters podcast and remember that you can support the podcast through venmo through cash app through paypal any small donation that you give a month or per episode or however you want to do it will only help to support the podcast and keep this information going and flowing to you the listener and thank you so much for all your help and support so far also you can support the podcast on my patreon page patreon.com captain hunters podcast make sure you head over there and and help the podcast out thank you so much in advance of your support so today we have a great episode with miss johanna hayes u.s congresswoman today's episode we're going to talk about the school to prison pipeline i could not think of anyone more dedicated or more qualified to have this conversation than someone who is the 2016 teacher of the year the U.S. National Teacher of the Year 2016, Ms. Johanna Hayes. After her stint as Teacher of the Year, she then entered politics and became U.S. Representative for the 5th District of the State of Connecticut. So just a little bit about Ms. Johanna Hayes. She's the first African-American woman and the first African-American Democrat to ever represent the state of Connecticut in Congress. As I mentioned before, 2016 National Teacher of the Year. She sits on a number of committees on Congress. Some of them are the Education and Labor and Agriculture Subcommittee or Early Childhood, Elementary and Secondary Education, Civil Rights and Human Services, Livestock and Foreign Agriculture, Nutrition, Oversight and Department Operations. She's a member of the Congressional Black Caucus, Pro-Choice Caucus, Coalition for Autism Research, and Education Caucus, and co-chair of the College Affordability Caucus. She serves on the Emergency Task Force on Black Youth Suicide and Mental Health, Education and Labor Task Force, Freshman Working Group on Addiction, Gun Violence Prevention Task Force, and is a deputy whip. Party leaders and whips are uh, basically caucus leaders. Uh, they're leaders of the political parties in the body of legislature. So she's a deputy whip. So that's a little bit about Ms. Johanna Hayes and uh, something we did not talk about. But uh, she also graduated in 1987 from <laughs> 
the Michael F. Wallace Middle School right here in Waterbury, Connecticut. And you know what? So did I. I was a 1987 graduate of the Michael F. Wallace Middle School in Waterbury, Connecticut. So I've known Miss Johanna Hayes for a long time. So very proud of her and her accomplishments. And the whole city of Waterbury is proud of her and her accomplishments. So we're going to talk about the school to prison pipeline. And what essentially that is, is there seems to be an over policing of students. We've seen a number of viral videos. I'm sure that you have seen a number of viral videos in which officers have been very heavy handed in their taking and apprehending of students, some of them five, six years old, 10 years old, some of them teenage students in high school, uh, tackling them, tackling students over uh, not paying attention over cell phones. One child was tackled over trying to steal milk. And so we're going to talk about a lot of these things and why these things are happening and what we can do in order to combat them. A lot of things that, that we can think about concerning the school to prison pipeline, right, is the idea that because of a number of policies, right, zero tolerance policies that are going on in schools, two students are fighting instead of teachers trying to get an understanding as to why they're fighting, right? All students are just suspended. Many times they're just arrested. And so this causes a serious problem, right? And so they're pushed out of the schools through high stakes testing, right? Some schools don't want to have their numbers as far as testing look bad. So they're expelling students and suspending students. And this, of course, if you don't give students something to do or some place to be or understanding the home life of many of these students, then it causes some serious problems uh, and it exacerbates the problem by when you take them out of the schools and put them in the criminal justice system. So that's what we're going to talk about. And that's what we're going to get into. And so I'm hoping that you all will just uh, sit back, relax, enjoy the conversation as we had it. So here we go. Miss Johanna Hayes, U.S. Representative. So we are live with Representative Johanna Hayes of the 5th District of the State of Connecticut. And thank you so much for being on Captain Hunter's podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. Okay, so I did read your bio. So if you would just take a couple minutes here and just kind of introduce yourself to the audience. <laughs> First of all, I'm sorry about that bio. My staff is super ambitious. Okay. <laughs> a freshman congresswoman from Connecticut's 5th Congressional District. I am newly elected. This is my inaugural race, my induction into politics. Uh, this time last year, I was a teacher in the Waterbury Public School System. I've been a teacher for going on 14 years. In 2016, I was named the National Teacher of the Year and came out on a sabbatical and traveled around the country, around the world, and really just got a very diverse perspective of my profession and the needs within various communities. And when this seat opened up, I realized that I had a perspective that was missing and a voice and threw my hat in the ring and want, ran for this seat and and won it. So I'm, you know, the first African-American woman to ever represent the state of Connecticut in Congress. I'm on the Committee of Education and Labor, which seems incredibly appropriate, and the Committee of Agriculture, and just excited to be there doing the work for the people in this district. Great, great. So what perspective was missing that you chose to throw your hat in the ring? Well, I think for me, and I've shared this story so many times <laughs> because it's true, <laughs> but um, at the conclusion of my year as Teacher of the Year, I had the opportunity to meet with the Secretary of Education, and she made a statement 
that I realized today had a profound impact on me. She said, I want to move government out the way so that parents can make the decisions for their children, which seems like an innocuous statement. But I was thinking, what about the kids who don't have parents? What about the kids who don't have anyone else to advocate for them? You know, isn't that your job as a secretary of education? Isn't that my job as an educator? You know, the the what what the secretary was describing was a scenario that would not have included me. You know, I was a teenage mom. My grandmother raised me. My mom was an addict most of my life. And I didn't have anyone to advocate for me. So I had to rely on the fact that when I went to school, everybody there would do the best job that they could do just because they were invested in me. And what the secretary was was describing was a scenario in which the people who already have agency would have access to more agency. And I just thought that there needs to be someone with, you know, that on the ground perspective who can represent all of these communities and all of these people who had probably either checked out of the conversation or felt that it didn't um, impact them. So, you know, I saw that during my time as teacher of the year. I met with parents. I met with educators. I met with, you know, and, and with civic and community organizations. And so many people just said, nobody gets it. And I thought, you know, I get it. And I have a voice and I have a platform and I at least have to try to use it in this way. Well, thank you for doing that. That, <laughs> no, that, re- that really means a lot. I mean, it's, it's refreshing to hear people who actually want to make a difference, you know, instead yeah. of getting into things because of selfishness. Well, I think that's very important because I always say I never wanted to be a congresswoman. So even it was never about the title. You know, I tell people my name is more important to me than any title. So my integrity is very important and being true to who I am is very important. I I tell my staff all the time, I sit in every hearing from gavel to gavel. Sometimes I'm the only member in the room. You know, people come and go, they give their testimony and they leave. But I, I stay the entire time and some of these hearings are three, four, five hours long. But I stay because I recognize that there are some people who will never have the opportunity to even be in these rooms. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting in a seat. I'm occupying a space that people who really have concerns will never, ever even be able to be a part of that conversation. So I have a responsibility to them. And that's what this should be about. It should be about the work and the people you serve and not the power or the title or all of the benefits that come along with it. Wow. Wow. From, ga- from gavel to gavel. Yeah. Good yeah. thing you didn't have to do that yesterday, right? Well, then, <laughs> well, as we record this conversation, um, there, the impeachment of Donald J. Trump is going on. And they had, a, correct me if I'm wrong, 11 hours of testimony. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, there were times where when, when, I, when I first came into this Congress, we were in the midst of a government shutdown. And there were times where we voted into the night to try to reopen government. And you just have to stay. It's a part of the job. You know, but I think about it, and I'm sure you know this, Captain Hunter, it's people who sat on jury trials. Mm-hmm. You go hours, eight, nine hours, sitting, listening to evidence. And right. that's what the average American person does all the time. Right. You know, these jobs are unpredictable, but anyone who takes this oath and takes it seriously knows that there are times where I'm early mornings, late nights, and yesterday was one of those days. and. I, I think it was necessary. Mm. It was necessary to lay out the facts, to give the American people all of the information so that they can make informed decisions. 
We live in a fairly liberal state, so I would assume that um, the feedback towards you concerning the, the impending impeachment is been, has been positive. Is that am I correct in that? You are not correct. Oh, in that. really? Okay, okay. <laughs> the state is not that, that liberal. And the feedback <laughs> is not that positive. Okay. It's interesting because most people think, even in, in the Congress, people say, "Oh, well, it's Connecticut. You know, it's a liberal state." But I think just think about it. I'm the first African American woman to ever represent the state of Connecticut. Okay. I think that in and of itself is telling. Okay. The state is what so in in the the way congressional districts are rated this district is rated 50.1 which means it's 50.1% democrat so it's 50 5149 so it's almost right down the middle so it's a toss up very purple district with some deep deep pockets of red and people who just have I mean, there are pockets of very progressive people, pockets of very um, conservative people, but for the most part, people are moderate. Mm. And yeah. no one really wants to push the needle one way or the other. And this has really opened up, this meaning the impeachment, the investigation, the inquiry, the trial has really opened up a lot of hurt and a lot of repressed feelings and people who feel like this is the time where they have to stand up for whatever side they believe in. So my office has gotten, and I think that the other part of that, so to your point, the feedback that I've gotten, I feel like the feedback and support of the president is a lot more vocal. You know, I, I sometimes I run into people at church or in the supermarket and they say, you know, thank you for the vote on impeachment. We support you. But these aren't the same people that show up at rallies and are out and very vocal and very public and writing letters. So that's why I spend as much time as I can in the district, because it's very easy for the information to be skewed. If I'm only looking at who's calling the office or who's emailing, it really is not an accurate reflection of the district. So I try to get out as much as I can. I Two nights ago, I had a town hall in, in Newtown. I do Facebook Live town halls. I want to get in front of my constituents as often as I can so that if people have questions for me, they can ask them. People disagree. They can voice those concerns because, as I remind my constituents, we have to live in this district when this is all over. Right. You know, no matter how this turns out, right. you know, we have to live here together. We have to be able to have dialogue and discussion. But it is not. This is this is. I'm considered what um, they call a frontline candidate. So, in my next reelection, Connecticut Five is on the list of the most vulnerable seats in the country. Okay. Which people find surprising because they're like, but it's Connecticut. Mm. And my response is always, but it's Connecticut. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it's not that liberal and it's not that predictable. Okay. Well, I've been educated. I thought, <laughs> well, I did know that there was some deep pockets of red. I mean, I have a lot of Facebook mm -hmm. friends. I'm like, mm -hmm. what are you writing? <laughs> you <know? laughs> More <Right>. here than <laughs> any other place in the state. And I think it's deceiving because my predecessor – and her predecessor were all Democrats, but the seat had been held for over 20 years by a Republican, okay. Connecticut uh, 5, and then it was split. It was Connecticut 5 and 6. It was two different congressional districts, okay. but it was held by a Republican for over 20 years and okay. was a traditionally Republican district. Okay. So, you know, the ebbs and flows of politics, it is now held by a Democrat, but the demographic makeup hasn't changed much. Right. You know, we, right. we think about it as the city. So I have Waterbury. Danbury, Torrington, New Britain, but I also have so many rural communities, 
suburban communities, farming communities. Oh. It really is. I go all the way up to the New York border. So okay. Falls Village, Salisbury, the Litchfield County. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Route 8 yeah. corridor. <laughs> yeah. So very purple. If the constituents were overwhelmingly uh, wanted you not to impeach, would how would you would that have swayed your vote? Wow. So I try to. That's a great question. I try to even before we had the vote for the impeachment inquiry. So during this year, there was a vote that came at another point to, there were articles of impeachment that came to the floor and I voted against them because I felt like they weren't substantial and there was no, there was no direct cause. You know, it was just a very broad sense of the president should be removed. And I said, that's not, <laughs> we just don't want this. Guy. Yes. The power <laughs> of impeachment should not be used for that. Right. So early in the summer, I wanted to take the opportunity and I was out doing town halls, talking to people because I wanted feedback and, you know, it was still kind of half and half, but I got to the point where around late August, early September, where we first got information about the Ukrainian call and evidence started to surface. What I, in the statement that I made to my constituents, I said, this is a point where I have to lead. You know, there are times where I will solicit your feedback and I will ask for input, but this is a point where as your elected representative, I have to lead. And based on what I've seen and based on the documents that I've reviewed and the hearings that I've sat in on, it is imperative at this time that we open an inquiry and begin to collect more evidence. So I th I would like to, I, I guess the answer to that is yes. Even if the constituents had overwhelmingly said, uh, we don't want you to vote to open an impeachment inquiry, based on what I had seen and what I, the information that I had been privy to as a member of Congress, there was enough there that was concerning enough to me that said, I have more questions. We need to gather more information. Okay. And that's that's where I was. And and the way I positioned it was I'm at a point where I have to lead. Okay. You know, I, I, I did a lot of thinking about this. And this is the teacher and me kicking back in. But <laughs> Don't have any flashbacks. <laughs> yeah. Well, because people – I did a lot of thinking about this, about what does this mean. And there are times as a leader where you kind of listen to your constituents and – be their voice. And there are other times where, again, you have to lead. And I look back at the 13th Amendment. And the 13th Amendment was passed in 1865, overwhelmingly, no Democratic support. Uh -huh. You know, and everybody today knows that that was the right thing to do. Right. But I think the leaders at that time were so far ahead of where the people were. And they said, you know what, this is the right thing to do. We have to make the decision. It's a hard decision to move this country in the direction that it needs to go. And I think that's kind of where I felt. Just because something's not popular or it's not polling, I think based on the information I had and what was in front of me, I I just believed it was the right thing to do. Okay. Good. That's an honest answer. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back to, uh, well, get to why I okay. wanted to have a conversation with you um, about this school-to-prison pipeline, mm -hmm. right? This problem of uh, police officers in schools, and yes, I was a police officer, and <laughs> and so I... Do you ever stop being a police officer? <laughs> listen, I say it all the time. I say we and us and our, and I think to myself, I don't do this anymore, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think the answer to that question is no, you never stop. It's well, I'm still a teacher. <laughs> Oh, good. <laughs> so, um, so this problem of officers going to schools and um, over policing, tackling students, um, arresting 
five-year-olds, six-year-olds, handcuffing 10-year-olds, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I wanted to have a conversation with you and see what we can do about it. Is it a problem at all? Of course, I would hope that we would agree that it is a problem. Um, I watched, uh, I was reading today that the state of Pennsylvania, their legislature for that state is now looking into passing legislation to stop this whole prison, school to prison pipeline, officers arresting people. And so I just wanted to talk, uh, just give you a moment here to kind of address this situation and see, um, you know, what are your thoughts on the whole problem or is it a problem at all? Well, I think it's absolutely a problem. And I think people are concerned. People are concerned about safety in schools mm-hmm. and there's this knee-jerk reaction to kind of go to the extreme mm-hmm. because people want their children to be safe. That's understandable. You know, people who are entering the profession want to be safe. That's understandable. There's a lot going on here. I think for the people of Connecticut 5, a very good first step was to elect a teacher and send her to Congress. On my committee, I am one of the very few people who have had any classroom experience and the person with the most recent experience in the classroom. I have other legislators who have been in schools and worked in some type of educational setting, but it's over a decade ago, some more than 20 years ago. So I have very recent experience in this climate of hypersensitivity where gun violence is is a problem. This isn't something that educators of 20 years ago were facing, or it was in a very different way. So I think the perspective that I bring is very important to these conversations. One of the very first pieces of legislation that I passed or that I proposed when I went to Congress was a resolution that said we should not be using federal funds to arm teachers. Mm. I worked in a school. You know, I worked right here in the city of Waterbury. My school had 1,300 kids and over 100 adults, certified professionals. Every one of those people, I don't think, is capable of operating a firearm or using a firearm. You know, my husband's a police officer, and I know the extensive training that goes in qualifying every year and making sure you're storing a gun safely and everything that goes along with it. And I don't think that an educator has the ability or the capacity, or I know I wouldn't, to secure a gun in a building with 1,300 teenagers. Mm. There's just so much liability that goes on, that, that's involved with that. You know, the insurance, I would think that school districts would have to cover in situations like that. We have many of these buildings that are outdated. I had a desk that didn't even have keys. You know, you inherit it from the person before you. It's just a very different atmosphere. And the skill set that you bring to teaching is very different than the skill set that uh, a police officer would have. You know, we don't have to go through um, psychological examinations. We don't have to go through agility tests. We don't have to make sure that we could secure a firearm or if, if we were overpowered by a student. None of those things are part of the requirements for becoming a teacher. So I think that it, it's not it's not as simple to parse it out as people think it is. The other thing that I've done, and I think this Congress has done, is really put preventative measures in place. Whenever there's proposed budget cuts to a school budget, the first thing people want to cut is intervention specialists, behavior Mm. therapists, counselors, social workers. Mm. Many of those things are can prevent a problem before it occurs. You know, we have so many young people who come to school with so much baggage and they're dealing with so many things that you have to sift through before they can even be positioned to learn. Once we're removing the people out of the building who can identify those things and help students mitigate them, then we are not regulating the temperature in the building. So whenever people are talking about 
we have to cut money, we have to lower the complement, we have to hire less teachers or put more students in a class. All of those things contribute to the safety of a school. And I don't think people think about those. They're thinking about, you know, buzzers and locks and alarms. But if we can control the climate in the building, if we can create a space where if kids feel uncomfortable or they feel threatened, there's a, an adult that they can talk to. You know, if they hear a friend, and that comes from having culturally responsive, trauma-informed educators in front of our kids. You know, people who, there were so many times where students would come to me and say, you know, there's going to be a fight after school or this is going to happen, and I just want you to know. And we were able to diffuse the situation before it started. But if we have teachers in our schools who don't understand our kids, who kids don't feel comfortable talking to, who can't have those types of conversations, who have implicit biases that they haven't even addressed, then it's like the perfect storm for the violence that we see in many schools. I remember taking my students out to do community service in the neighborhood surrounding their school. You know, I had four or five boys off the basketball team who just wanted to do community service with me. You know, six feet tall, black boys. And people in the neighborhood are asking, how did you get them to do this? Or are they on parole? Or there's all <laughs> these preconceived notions about who they are right. and and why they're there. Right. And that comes from people who don't have an understanding of who their students are. And I think the last thing I would say, I've really fought hard for grant funding so that schools can, you know, update the infrastructure in their buildings to have, you know, two-way entry systems, to have cameras and buzzer systems and all of those things because you want kids to be safe. You know, it's unfortunate that we're in an environment where kids are having lockdown drills. That's yeah. that's a norm. That's a part of what they do where um, kids are going through metal detectors to go into schools and buildings. Um, but we've had lots of legislation. I have some, this safer, keeping safe and Keeping Students Safe Act to train staff and improve school climate. You hear a lot about positive behavior intervention and supports. All of those things are part of the overall security concerns. It's not just putting an officer in the building, someone with arrest powers that can arrest a student because the problem doesn't go away. Right. I, I think it's more about building positive cultures in school. Right. That was a long answer, but that is my life's work. <laughs> well, it, because it is my life's work because for many of my students, you think about it. I had kids who spent more time with me than with their parents. Yeah. You know, we had kids, classes didn't start till 7, but our doors opened at 6, and we had kids in the lobby at 6 o'clock and stayed between practice, doing homework, after-school activities, stayed in our building till 7 o'clock at night. You know, you want kids to be safe when they're in those spaces. And, you know, that's your first job. My, my principal used to always say, my first job is to keep this building safe. Mm. Kids can't learn if they're not safe. Right, right. So I was thinking about your answer as concerning um, how many counselors mm -hmm. are in schools. And I was reading about New York. They have like something like 5,200 police officers who are somehow dedicated to the school system, somehow, some way. Mm -hmm. um, and so the article went on to say that they now have more Police officers dedicated to, than more than more teachers and and more counselors. Wow! So just to think about that, you know, if so, if we had, and I thought a lot about what you were saying as far as the emotional problems that kids have, um, 
that they bring to the classroom that they aren't able to solve and that you are in a position because of your empathy, because of your background, that you're able to be there for them. Uh, and that means a lot, I think. I think that means a lot. Well, I think even my situation at my school, at Kennedy High School, was very unique because we had school resource officers for the last 10 years. They've had them long before this was this evolving conversation. and But it was in a very different way. Our, we had one officer who was dedicated to our building, and he became a part of the staff, you know, went to games after school, volunteered with our students, you know, went to practices, would come in the classrooms. And what I saw was a bond that was forming between members of the police department and students and young people in our community who had been conditioned to have a very different reaction to police officers. So there was a lot positive that comes out of that. And so it's not as black and white as it seems. I think if you're putting someone in the building, putting a police officer in the building who doesn't have the opportunity for relationship building or sees this job in a very different way, I think that our school resource officer was very effective in our building, you know, would come in and help out in classrooms and just became a part of the staff. It was very rare that he would use arrest powers in the building. Very rare. You know, it had to be a very dangerous situation and something. So I see things that happen around the country or in other schools. And I recognize that done well, it is a framework that could work. Mm. Because I've seen kids who probably would have never thought about going into law enforcement who started picking the brain of the SRO every day, asking them questions. Well, what do I need to do? Or how do you do this? And then little by little becoming interested because they saw the profession in a very different way. So I think there's some value. But we cannot just put people in a building who don't understand that we are educating the whole child. Everybody in this building has a responsibility for some part of this child's education. You know, So it's very different than policing on the street. And that's that you have to have the right person who understands that and a department that supports that and educates their officers on their role within the building so they're so that they're not seen as adversarial once they enter a school. That's a very good point. That's a very good point. Yeah. So I think that that the culture of a police department can help or hurt. Right. The, the culture of the of the school that they're going Absolutely. into. Absolutely. So our I think that. Our SRO really re-engaged our students into the idea of community policing. You know, I remember growing up in the city where we had community substations where you had conversations and relationships with police officers. But my students, unfortunately, were growing up in a very different era where they didn't have those types of interactions. Right. You know, their, most of their interactions with the police officer were negative. So I saw the beginning of community policing again because the officer wasn't seen as, you know, an adversary or an enemy. The kids would have conversations on and offline, would ask questions, would share fears, would alert the officer to things that were happening in and out of school. You know, there were lots of different things where uh, crimes were solved because students went to the police officer in school and said, I know this is going to happen. Or... I fear that my friend is in trouble, you know, so there was some, some true relationship building that happened. And I, I have to think that that's good because those kids will go out into the world with a very different reality of the role of police officers in their right. community. Well, that's huge. Yeah. That's huge. That really is huge. 
that's another reason why I used to coach all the time and coach mm-hmm. and pal and stuff. So I, I definitely, definitely believe that that makes a big difference. Our officers were part of our building. They were at every game, football games. They were, you know, the kids knew them on the streets. It mm-hmm. was, it was just a very, but I think that the department also supported those kinds of relationships. Oh, you know, yeah. you had a dedicated officer who was at the same school all the time. And it was interesting because if an officer was going to go on vacation or be out, they would always tell the student, this is who's going to be here, you know, because kids would look for them and notice when they weren't there. Right. So it was, I don't think it's all negative. And, okay. it, and I think that sometimes we get caught up in these monoliths right. where you think, well, it didn't work here or this particular officer didn't do this well or this particular school system. And it's like, okay, so let's look at it and figure out what works and duplicate that and then take away the parts that don't work. But this all-or-nothing approach to everything is not practical. Good. Because at the end of the day, we want our schools safe. That's that's well said. Let me approach this from the other side of the aisle there, the proverbial aisle there, and say that uh, students who are being arrested or thrown down or whatever are um, deserve what they get, right? Their parents should teach them better. They should respect authority or whatever. Um, what would be your response to someone who comes... To, that particular approach is the police officer's right. He should have taken this action. No. I mean, whether you're in a school or on the street, that's never appropriate. And I think that on the same token, those police officers should be held accountable as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I've seen, we've all seen disturbing footage from around the country right. about incidents like that. And that's never appropriate. You know, kids come to school to learn. Right. Kids come to school with many different challenges. And, the job of a teacher, my job, our job, the role of the profession is to meet children where they are. You know, there were some kids who were, you know, had attitudes or didn't want to do things or seemed disrespectful, but that's no reason, no reason for a child to go to school and end up in handcuffs. Um, I've seen also, and this is a reality, you know, I worked in a very large urban public school district and you see kids who enter the juvenile justice system way too early because of an incident that happened in school. Right, right. Those can be mitigated in very different ways. You know, there are very different ways to deal with student behaviors, very different things that can be done. So an arrest is absolutely should not be our first line of defense or the way we are engaging students and young people. And for many of these kids, when people say, you know, the parents should have taught them better or they should know better, it's not their fault if they happen to come from a home where the parents didn't have that ability or that capacity. You know, I think that those ideas and those attitudes just continue to per- perpetuate those cycles of poverty, those cycles of intolerance. And anyone, whether it's a police officer, a teacher, anyone who who s- swears an oath to public service you know, no matter what the job is, should not ever put themselves ahead of the people they serve, you know. And I think it's it's especially important for a police officer who's entering a school building to know that, which is why I, I, I don't think that every, every person who puts on a uniform is someone who is suited to be a school resource officer. True. <laughs> I mean, it takes, a, there, are, there are people who love it. There are people who love working with young people. Because like I said before, when you're in, when you're in the school, part of your job is to educate this child. So mm. even if you have on a uniform, you are responsible for some aspect of this child's education. 
So whether it be answering questions, whether it be pulling them aside, which might be different than the way you police on the street. And it takes someone who has accepted that responsibility to say, I know what I'm getting into. I'm up for this task. This is what I want to do. But it's never appropriate. It's never appropriate. And I think that any officer who engages in that type of activity in a school building should be held accountable. Are we asking too much from our public servants, i.e. teachers and uh, police officers, right? Now the counselors, like you said, they're there from six in the morning to, to six, seven o'clock at night. Are we asking too much of our public servants? Um, in the I role? think we ask a lot. Okay. I think we ask a lot. But I also recognize for the people who choose these professions, they have a heightened sense of obligation as well. Um, I became a teacher. I used to say, if the students having trouble learning in my class, it's not up to them to learn differently. It's up to me to teach differently. And that would require several versions of the same test, different accommodations, staying after, coming in early, you know, study sessions. So it was a lot more work for me. But this was the profession that I love and that I chose. So I wanted my students to learn. It wasn't about a job. It wasn't about a paycheck for me. And I think most of the people who engage in these professions and last in these professions, they feel the same way. I mean, sometimes you have people who do it for very different reasons, but most times they weed themselves out. They don't last very long or their careers come to an abrupt end or they're just never happy, never fulfilled, never satisfied. I think public servants and true public servants, the people who choose this work, love the work and really want to impact change and improve outcomes in their communities. But, I mean, as it goes with human nature, people are people. And yeah. <laughs> you always have some some bad apples in any profession, but I don't think it, it changes the nature of the profession and the work of a public servant. I have to believe that. Yeah. Just one more thing about the, the parental aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Living in inner city, I was uh, the product of a uh, single-parent home. My mother raised two boys. Speak to the difficulties of that, of being, um, you know, you obviously have dealt with single parent homes, people who don't, as you alluded to before, people who don't have the same uh, fervor about education. They don't discipline mm -hmm. their kids. And obviously no one wants to send their child to a school that's, like you said, unsafe and or that's going to sit next to a child who doesn't take education as seriously. Right. Speak to that difficulty. Um, I think, again, it requires accommodations and modifications because for many of these young people, they didn't choose the life they were born into. You know, you have someone who's born to a single mom, a teenage mom, who is in a very disruptive household. They come to school with all they know. And I think sometimes, sometimes as adults, we kind of have to just take a step backwards and say, well, maybe no one's ever explained to them that this is inappropriate. You know, maybe no one's ever pulled them aside and have that converse, had that conversation. And a lot of that is how we approach students. I've had so many students who were explosive, angry, just uncontrollable. And I pulled them aside and developed a relationship and a rapport and a level of trust where I would say, you can't do this. You know, I need you to take a walk with me. And it requires a lot more time and attention, but it's worth it. And... It's unfortunate that so many people don't see that and the impact of that. I remember when I first got to Congress, there was a committee I was 
the, I was chairing a committee, and it was on seclusion and restraint. And we went for three hours talking about kids being restrained in schools. Mm. But the whole conversation was about students who had autism or special education needs. And we were about to gavel out. And I says, how can we conclude a hearing about this important topic without even talking about the fact that boys and boys of color are disproportionately secluded and restrained for behavior issues more than any other group? Like, we're not even talking about this in a real and authentic way. And I think many school districts and many school systems don't want to have those conversations because it seems like it makes, I think people feel like somehow they've done something wrong. If the numbers show that black and brown children are suspended more, restrained more, and they're like, well, no, we're not doing it on purpose. These are the kids who just happen to be suspended more. Right, they're right. getting in more trouble. They act out more. But I can tell you that there's so many other cultural things around that. You know, I would have stu students who's, Parents never came in for, for parent-teacher night, you know, so the perception that the teacher had of them was very different, but it's like, well, their parents work a second shift job, right? you know, right, we have right. it every, it's always on a Thursday, it's always seven to nine. If you work on Thursday, second shift, then you can't come at this time. You know, I've seen firsthand where two students gets in trouble, one parent can leave work and come to the school and have a conversation with the principal and that student is sent home to cool off and the other student is suspended for three days. I've wow. seen where a student is suspended and the parents come back in and it, it goes from an out-of-school suspension to an in-school suspension. So we cannot have a system by which only the kids who have an advocate who comes in and speaks up for them are the ones who we give consideration to or special consideration to. I had to do that for my own son a couple of times. Yeah, I would all, well, <laughs> which my I was thing not was happy all, about. <laughs> my thing is always, I always ask, would ask myself, is this the education I would want for my child? Is right. this what I would want for my child? Right. I mean, there were some kids who their behavior warranted a discipline infraction or their behavior warranted time, you know, an in-school suspension. But I think it, it has to be fair. It has to be equitable. It can't be one set of rules or one standard of principles for one group and a different one for another group. So I think it's something that mo a lot of schools still struggle with. I'm happy that so many districts are investing in the resources to educate their teachers about implicit bias, about trauma-informed counseling, about understanding. I remember Waterbury did a study, and what they found was that our students, I forget the number, but it was a disproportionate number. Our students had what amounted to PTSD, the same as a combat veteran. Like kids were coming to school with so much trauma from being homeless or um, transient, having abuse, neglect, uh, poverty, food insecurity. Kids were coming, and by first grade, they had the, their level of stress was equivalent to someone who had returned from combat. I'm going to get that study. Yeah. Had returned from combat. It's a study that came out of, of, of Yale. Okay. And actually, I could send it to you. Um, because I, I referenced it in my committee. But just think about that. You know, we have adults who know how to articulate the fact that they are struggling. Imagine when you have children who their only remedy is to act out. Right. And if you have people who can't even acknowledge or consider the fact that, you know, this child is being disrespectful and they have their head on the desk and I'm trying to teach, but not even asking one more question where they realize, actually, this child is homeless and slept in a car last night, and they've been up all night, and their head is down because they're tired, 
or this kid is out of dress code because the family lives in a shelter and they don't have a, a washing machine and this was all that they had clean and they didn't want to miss school today. Right. You know, there's so many things that kids are afraid to articulate because they're embarrassed of their circumstances. And it's just easier to get in trouble and not speak up about it. You know, people don't think about those things. I had a student who refused to stay after school with me. And when I did a little bit more research, I'm trying to call his parents and get permission. I look at the address and realize that he lived at St. Vincent de Paul Shelter. Mm. I noticed the Benedict Street address and realized the reason this kid refused to stay after to come back to a study session at 6 o'clock was because as a family, they had to be into the shelter by 530. Wow. You know, another teacher would have given him a zero. But all it took was for me to go through, you know, two pieces of paper to figure out this is why. And he did, he won't say that to me because he's a teenage boy and there's so many, you know, there's so much of a backstory involved in that. Wow. That's part of the job, though. Wow. I was educated here today. <laughs> seriously, seriously. Well, I never thought about all that. I mean, that's, well, it, that's it's, really deep. It's There's so many layers to the story and... You know, a good teacher gets to those layers, and it's not anything that a kid just opens up and tells you on the first day, but it's through conversations and building trust and all of the things that go along with that. You know, this city, there are so many, um, there's a law called McKinney-Vento, and it deals with homeless children who are school age. Because years ago, if you didn't have an address, you couldn't register in school. You know, so parents were keeping their kids home. You know, wow. we have girls being trafficked, boys. Just, there's so much going on now. Okay, right. the, 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 the problem with gang violence and, you know, all of the influences that are involved. Our right. children are dealing with so much trauma, so much trauma. And the answer cannot be, the default cannot be to put them into the prison system. That cannot be it, you know. And it, 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 there's almost like a snowball effect because... Even when you have a kid that's struggling, if a kid has an arrest or a felony conviction, they are forever barred from Pell Grants. Right. So right. even if a kid turns his life around, they now can't get the funding or the resources to go to college, to get a post-secondary education, to get their life back on track. So it's almost like kids are steered in, and then once they're in, there's no way out of this vicious cycle. So we have to legislate differently. We have to legislate in a way that is responsive to the needs of the students that we're dealing with today. Wow. Thank you so much. And that's why you were 2016 <laughs> Teacher of the Year. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Ray. I mean, we could talk all day about this one. This is this is really my life's work and why why I ran for Congress and why this is so important to me because there needs to be someone in the room who understands the challenges that are faced on the ground. You know, it's not a zero-sum game. This idea that kids should know better, parents should teach better, people should do better. If that, if we lived in a perfect world, maybe, but that's not the world we live in. So we have to deal with things as they are and meet kids and educators with the resources that they need so that they're not pushed into this prison pipeline because we've failed so many students in that way. You know, we have to support school districts um, to make sure that the resources are there. We have to not cut social workers and counselors and resources and after-school programs. Right. You know. And food cuts, right? Everything. So this, some everything. Of, some I, I introduced legislation, yeah. yes, for food security programs, for closing the college hunger gap, 
was one of the pieces of legislation I introduced because if kids are worrying about all these things, they're not learning. Right. They're not learning. If kids get out of school and they have nowhere to go, they're going to get in trouble. Right. So while people think that these are unnecessary and costly government programs, they're too important not to fund. Right. You know, they're too important not to fund. I grew up in a time where we went to after school program, we went to a summer program. We had yeah. theater, yeah. we had arts, we had music. There was always something to do. Right. We have kids with nothing to do. And by default, someone else is going to give them something to do. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. So I'm fighting the good fight. Yes, you are. I think I am. <laughs> yes, you are. Thank you so much for being on Captain Hunter's podcast. I really, really appreciate this conversation. Like, truly. Well, thank and you. I'm not just saying that because thanks for having because your husband's bringing it. So. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Uh, okay. So I hope that you all enjoyed the conversation. I know I really did. She really schooled me. Can I can I say that term? She schooled me on a lot of different ideas, a lot of different problems that many students are going through, and I really appreciate her for taking the time to come on the podcast and, and educate us as to, you know, some of the reasons why many of these children suffer may not be truly up to par as where we think they should be as far as their academics and academic achievement. One of the major themes that we're trying to solve here on this podcast and trying to educate our listeners on is the fact that if we solve many of these social issues, right, whether it's mental health or homelessness or drug addiction if we settle and handle many of these social issues, then many of these other problems won't happen, right? We won't have such a bloated criminal justice system, be pushing for all these different reforms if we solve the many of the economic and social factors that are going on in people's lives. I hope that that message is really coming through loud and clear. So really truly and think about that. So that's it, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you truly enjoyed that episode. I know I did. And uh, please, once again, make sure that you rate, subscribe, and share. And uh, just tell a friend and just tell them to head on over to Captain Hunter's podcast and see what we got going on over here. Remember, the podcast can be supported through Cash App, PayPal and Venmo. Also, the Patreon page, Captain Hunter's podcast. Until next time, much love and peace.